and our children ages three and four in kindergarten through fifth grade, you're welcome to attend our children's church at this time. If you have your Bibles with you, would you please go ahead and open up to the book of Genesis. We're going to be in Genesis chapter one. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a Bible in the pew rack in front of you. I want to encourage you this morning to open that up and keep it open over the duration of our study. I think it'll be really, really beneficial to you. And if you don't have a Bible and you need one, we'll be happy to get one for you. Uh, while you're turning to Genesis, uh, one quick bit of information to share with you, uh, something we'll talk more about and give more uh, details to in the weeks ahead. But uh, on June 6th, just a few Sundays away, June 6th, uh, we are going to make the move from two services to one worship service on Sunday mornings. In that worship service, uh, that one worship service will be at 9 o'clock. Uh, doing so, we, are, we will still be living within the requirements the state asks of us. Uh, we'll still wear masks. We will still um, practice social distancing. Uh, for the duration of this past year, we have been living under the threshold. Um, I, I don't just mean in submission to, I mean we've been doing more than what's been asked of us by the state. And in making this move to one service, we'll still continue to be meeting uh, very easily the threshold the state has given us. We anticipate that maybe the first uh, few weeks of this we'll need overflow seating. We'll be prepared for that and it'll be good. We still want to have a safe space, but we also want to continue to move forward um, uh, in healthy directions and in wise directions. So like I said, we'll talk more about it in the coming weeks. If you've got questions or concerns, feel free to call. Let's talk about it. Um, but I'm excited for us to sing uh, together as one church with one voice and uh, to celebrate the Lord as one faith family. On June the 6th, not only will we meet for one worship service at 9, but then at 10.30 that morning, we're going to have baptism and testimony service that we haven't had in a very long time. And then the next Sunday, the 13th, is our annual meeting. And we're going to celebrate what God's doing in South Shore Baptist Church and uh, the way his mission is being fulfilled through us. And we're going to celebrate new members as part of our church as well. So that's coming up. So Genesis chapter 1, verses 3 through 13 is where we're going to spend our time this morning. Last Sunday, uh, a church member grabbed me and asked this question. He said, um, he said, what am I supposed to say whenever someone says to me, uh, the Bible is just full of myths and made-up stories, and it's not reliable or true in any way. And I think perhaps we've all been in that situation before, where we've been confronted with arguments against the truthfulness of the Bible. And a lot of times, uh, it, the creation account is a popular place for skeptics and critics to attack. Common attacks would be, this is just a bunch of mythologies. Uh, didn't you know that at the same time this was written, there were already other creation accounts being circulated? Uh, one called the Enuma Elisha, it has a lot of the same things that Genesis has. And so it just really seems clear that Genesis is a knockoff of these others. 
we've been confronted with conversations like that and, and wrestled with those, and I think we can respond in a few different ways. It's easy to just sort of tuck our tails and run away or just go from Genesis to the cross and, and try to talk about the veracity of the life of Christ and His death and resurrection. There's any number of ways we, can, we might move to avoid that type of discussion, but there's no reason for us to avoid it, no reason for us to be afraid. We have every reason to be confident in what the Bible says to us about creation and about our Creator. In fact, this story, this creation account, was written in a very similar historical context. If you were with us last week, you might remember the time at which Moses wrote this account. He wrote it, we believe, after the Hebrew people have left slavery in Egypt. And they're in the wilderness, and uh, although they have been set free from Egypt, they haven't left Egypt behind entirely. They've brought with them Egypt's gods and Egypt's mythologies. And so Moses, under the inspiration of God, sits down and writes the first five books of the Bible. Uh, He writes this creation account specifically, not to provide an alternate mythology, but to speak the truth about who we are and who God is and how we got here. Moses doesn't write as if to say, well, the Egyptians have their truth and now we have ours, but rather he's saying this is the true story of creation and all other stories are false. So the critique that Genesis is mythology, like all other mythologies, is ill-informed and intellectually lazy. You see, ancient Judaism didn't practice writing mythology the way other cultures did. And also, ancient Judaism understood these stories as historical, just as modern believers do today. We believe this does not describe sort of a blank slate creation in which we get to fill in the gaps with whatever theories we find popular in the day, but rather this speaks to us of a definite creator who definitely created in history And his words are trustworthy and true. Now, we live in a world of competing creation narratives and assumptions, but you as a follower of Jesus don't have to make excuses for the Bible or have to avoid the creation account altogether. What the Bible says about creation and its creator is trustworthy and true. So my purpose in preaching this passage today is to increase your confidence in what the Bible says about God and his creation And I want to do that by clarifying three essential beliefs of the doctrine of creation. Now, although our passage that we're studying is verses 3 through 13 today, I'm going to start reading at verse 1. And so follow along with me in your Bible, Genesis chapter 1, and I'll start in verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. There was an evening, and there was a morning one day. Then God said, Let there be an expanse between the waters, separating water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above the expanse. And it was so. God called the expanse sky. Evening came, and then morning, the second day. Then God said, Let the water 
under the sky be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the gathering of the water he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the earth produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and fruit trees on the earth, bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And it was so. The earth produced vegetation, seed-bearing plants according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Evening came, and then morning, the third day. We have reason to be confident in our Creator and in His creation from this passage. And I want to start by, before we dive into the essentials of this doctrine of creation, I want us to first take a moment to make sense of what we've just read and and what we've seen. Verse 2, we talked about it more in depth last week, describes the earth at the initial stages of creation as formless and void. Those things are problematic. To say the earth was formless is to say it lacked definition, it lacked structure. To say it was void is to say it lacks life. Void or empty, it doesn't have any living beings in it. It's not ready for life, it does not possess life. But then the act of creation and formation begins in full. I want to show you a chart on the screen that lays out how the days of creation go in solving the problem of the earth's formlessness and its need to be filled. And so days one, two, and three of creation solve the formless problem in that God gives form to the earth. He gives it sky. He gives it seas. He gives it land. He forms it so that it can be inhabited. And then on days four, five, and six, he forms the empty, or excuse me, he settles the empty or the void problem of earth. He fills it with life. The creation account has remarkable symmetry to it. Uh, You can see the parallelism in the accounts of creation here, so that on day one, God creates light. And on day four, he creates the luminaries that make the light or that rule the day and rule the night. On day two, he creates sky and waters. And then on day five, he creates the creatures that fill sky and waters, birds and fish. On day three, he creates land, and on day six, he creates the creatures that fill the land, animals and humans. There's this beautiful symmetry to the story. And so creation goes from being formless and void to being formed and filled with life. Now, what we just read in the first three days of creation gives us a a similar pattern. There's this rhythm to each day. It's not an exact rhythm or pattern. It's not uh, completely the same from day to day, but still we find these tremendous similarities in the language that's used to describe what happens. And so we get these verbs used of God over and over. God said, God called, and God saw. God gets all the verbs with one exception in this passage. God said, God called, and God saw. So when the Bible tells us God said, in this instance, it's speaking of the means by which he creates. He creates by his powerful word. And so in the account of these three days of creation, God has four speaking parts. On day one, God said, let there be light. On day two, let there be an expanse between the waters. And then day three gets two creative commands. 
Let the water under the sky be gathered into one place, and then let the earth produce vegetation. Another repeated phrase in this creation account is the phrase, it was so. So every time God speaks, we get a confirmation statement that what he commanded actually happened. In verse 3, it looks a little different. It looks like this. We're, said, we're told, God said, let there be light, and there was light. There's the confirmation statement. God spoke, and it happened. It's different in his other speaking parts. In verses 7, 9, and 11, we're just given the simple line, and it was so. But every time God speaks, we get confirmation that what God commands happens. The other verb given to God is called. God called. Not only does God create things, he also names them. In verse 5, God called the light day and the darkness he called night. In verse 8, God called the expanse sky. In verse 10, he calls the dry land earth and the gathering of the waters he calls the seas. The act of naming is an act of sovereignty. The other verb God gets is God saw. We're told three different times that God saw what he had created. And each time, what God saw was good. In verse 4, the light was good. In verse 10, the dry land and the seas are good. In verse 12, the plants and the trees are good. So here's this repetition. It's as if the writer is trying to communicate something to us. God is the active agent in creation. He's bringing all these things together. He's bringing order out of the chaos. One of the most important keys to making sense of the creation account as a reader is knowing where you stand in the story. And the creation account is told from this perspective. It's told from the perspective of a person standing on earth as the events of creation unfold around them. That's particularly helpful when we get to verse 6, which is a bit confusing. Look at verse 6 with me in your Bible. Then God said, let there be an expanse between the waters separating water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above the expanse, and it was so, and God called the expanse sky. In order for this to make better sense, it's helpful to read it as if you are standing on planet Earth at the moment this happens. Moses uses what we would call phenomenological language to describe what he sees happening. So when he says God separated water from water or waters below from waters above, he's describing water on earth separated from waters in the sky. The dome that seems to keep the water above, that's the expanse. And the place where rain falls from and where the stars are hung in their place, that's the sky. So when we get to the end of day three, we have light and we have sky, and we have earth, and we have plants and trees. We have all the things necessary for life. And this description of earth's formation provides us with three essential beliefs related to the doctrine of creation. And that's what I want you to walk out of here with this morning. What are these three essential beliefs? The first is this, is that God created everything out of nothing. He created all things out of nothing. This is bullseye Bible belief material. This is Christianity 101. Everyone who properly calls them a, themselves a Bible-believing Christian, a gospel-believing Christian, would believe this, that God created all things 
out of nothing. That may seem like a very simple statement, and truly it is, but it is an absolutely essential biblical truth and one that needs a telling in our current cultural moment. The Bible teaches us that God is the creator. He is eternal and not created. He doesn't have a mother God and a father God somewhere. He alone is God. And we learned last week that God has no origin story because the creator doesn't have an origin. He is the eternal uncreated. And not only does the Bible teach us that God is eternal, but the Bible tells us something about matter itself. Matter is temporal. It is not eternal. When God began the act of creation in Genesis 1, he doesn't begin with things he just had lying around. Oh, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, we'll stir it all together, boom, planet Earth. He speaks into nothingness, and by his powerful word, things appear, the things happen. His creative tool is his word. He creates everything out of nothing. It's essential that you and I, as Bible-believing Christians, Jesus-believing Christians, that we are settled on this most basic of Christian doctrines. Anytime we begin to talk about creation and talk about Genesis, there's always two big questions that pop up. And those big questions are this, what do we do about Darwinism and how old is the universe? So over the next six hours, I want to answer these questions for you. <laughs> I'm hearing no objections, actually. Uh, we've got tacos to eat, so we've got to be quick about this. Here's the deal. Uh, these are huge questions that I cannot adequately address inside a tiny sermon. Cannot do it. And I think it would be irresponsible for me to attempt to address them in full. And so there is a mountain of literature and just miles and miles of videotape recorded on these subjects. I'm going to trust that uh, you are already reading on these things, already educating yourselves. And if you're not, I would encourage you to, to start and begin to, to grow your faith, have an informed faith about the matters of creation. Now, that being said, I do want us to just touch very lightly on these two issues because there's wisdom that we should take with us from the Bible on these matters. So let's start first with, with Darwin's theory of evolution. In the debate between evolution and intelligent design or evolution and creationism, there's been a profound lack of humility on both sides. Each side has treated the other as if it's full of imbeciles who don't listen and who don't believe science. The criticisms of both camps are almost exactly the same. And it's unfortunate because science and Christianity are not mortal enemies. Sometimes the church has acted as if science is Satan's pulpit. Cover your ears, kids. We don't want science to get into your heart. And this is unfortunate. And likewise, many in the scientific community have, create, or have treated the church as if the church is a collection of backwards-thinking morons. All of it's unfortunate and unnecessary. Now, that being said, evolutionary theory is built on the idea of explaining the origin of species apart from a creator. I mean, its stated goal is we're just going to look at the world and we're going to explain where things come from without an intelligent designer, without a God who put these things into place. Creationism, on the other hand, holds that the God of the Bible is the creator of species. And so, generally speaking, neither group is interested in finding a common ground. There are some people who will try to find that common ground by saying, well, maybe God created using evolution. But generally speaking, neither creationists nor evolutionists want a theistic evolutionist. 
Uh, one prominent uh, atheist, Richard Dawkins, said, theistic evolution is just an attempt to smuggle God in the back door. <laughs> I thought that was funny. But uh, So we're, we try to find a middle ground, but there's, there's not a middle ground really to be found between those who say there is no God and so we are and those who say there is a God and that's why we are. But the Bible states unequivocally that God created the heavens and the earth and all that's in them. The account of creation has never been treated by God's people as a metaphor that changes with changes in scientific knowledge. Creation has never been a DIY doctrine. God is the creator and the tool for his creation is his powerful word. That doesn't mean Christians ignore scientific inquiry. But it does mean that we expect the clear teaching of the Bible and scientific evidence to match up. As for me personally, I don't see where evolutionary theory and creationism match up. I find many works, uh, especially recent printed works, to be very convincing of why we can have confidence that there is an intelligent designer and why specifically that intelligent designer is the God of the Bible. Uh, I, I think there are some really powerful writers right now who are asking poignant questions of Darwinism, and many of those questions have not been answered satisfactorily. Now, I admit my bias towards the Bible. I admit I'm not a scientist. I admit I have limits in my understanding on these things. I need to read molecular biology on a first-grade level if there is such a thing. However, if you ask me, where did all this come from? My answer to you is going to be Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was made from things that are not visible. So let's be humble in our dialogues and discussions about creation uh, and about uh, creation uh, versus uh, evolution. Uh, let's be humble and make sure that in those discussions, you remember you're standing in front of someone who bears the image of God. This is a person who's known by God and loved by him. And we don't debate people into the kingdom of Christ. We love them into the kingdom of Christ. And so have an informed faith, have a settled faith, and be compassionate as you carry on those conversations. The second question we would touch on briefly is how old is the universe? This is a discussion really among church people, uh, more so than those in the church and those out of the church. And generally speaking, we think there's two options. Well, either it's really young or it's really old. But in fact, there are at least six different views that attempt to explain the six days of creation. Not all of those views can be correct. And in fact, only one of them can be right. It could be the right one is not listed among the six options that we have. But Bible-believing, gospel-loving Christians throughout the ages have not agreed on the answer to this question. According to Brian Chapel, the president of Covenant Seminary, those who believe in six literal 24-hour days of creation include such greats as John Calvin, William Henry Thornwell, and Louis Burkhoff. However, other Christian greats have believed that the six days of creation did not limit God's creative actions to six literal 24-hour days. Those include Augustine and Aquinas, the Puritan William Ames, 19th century defenders of orthodoxy like Charles Hodge, A.A. A. Hodge and B.B. Warfield, and prominent 20th century defenders of the faith like J. Gresham Machen, J. Oliver Buswell, Donald Gray Barnhouse, and Francis Schaeffer. 
So how should we approach the differences in beliefs among Bible-believing Christians on this issue? Well, Dr. Chappell says that we should do so with goodwill and humility, much as we do with our different views of the end times. Christians can differ over issues like this and still believe the Bible is entirely true without accusing each other of being heretics. When we take up swords and pitchforks and torches against each other on issues like this, we're not doing the kingdom or ourselves any favor. We have to be humble and compassionate with each other, even when we are decided on matters like this. Honestly, what should happen on doctrines of creation is it should lead us to a place of worship. Sadly, it's mainly just led us to places of warfare, anger. We're going to be militant about this, and we'll fight each other, and we'll fight the world as well. But I don't think that's what the doctrine of creation is meant to create in us. It's not meant to militarize us, but rather it's rather to join us into a choir that sings a beautiful song of praise to God. Did you know that Revelation chapter 4 verse 11 has the lyrics to a song of praise sung to God in his very throne room? And the lyrics to that song go like this. Our Lord and God, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power because you have created all things and by your will they exist and were created. So we can stop fighting and we can start praising God together for the creation he has made and he has formed for us. That's the stuff of worship. Second essential belief related to the doctrine of creation is this. God's creation is good. Very simple, God's creation is good. Three different times in the creation account, we're told that God saw his creation and it was good. It's as if we are observing God. God is surveying the work that he's done. And he's looking on it with pleasure and satisfaction. And we see God looking at it and calling it good. This is a beautiful way of describing God and his acts of creation. God speaks, creation obeys and it's good. Now, not too long ago, I had this realization that if God created all things, and if his creation is good, then everything I enjoy in the world around me is a gift from God's limitless imagination. I mean, think about this. I, I, I believe God's totally sovereign in creation. So there's nothing that happens in creation that God stands back and says, oh, I didn't see that coming. I didn't know koala bears would pop up. I, didn't, I don't think anything around us here is a surprise. I think God, out of his infinite, divine, immaculate imagination, creates all things, makes it possible. And so every good thing we delight in is God's intentional creation. So what does that mean practically? It means God created barbecue. And God created coffee and ice cream and tacos I mean, think about your favorite food. I want you to be very specific. Your favorite food. God created that thing. And I'm not trying to be flippant or irreverent here. I'm very serious about this. Our God is so great, so magnificent. He cares even about the tiny morsels on our plates. Now, the jury's still out on seltzer and black licorice. We all know that to be the case. But I suppose... Even those can be gifts of God to people who don't know better. But what else has God created and given to you? 
friendship, laughter, the joy of a great story, art, music, singing, grandchildren, a mother. All these good things come from the creative, compassionate imagination of our God. And so it's right for us to enjoy creation as a gift from God. However, the goodness of creation is not the finish line of our joy. Rather, every little thing we enjoy in this life points beyond itself to the one who gave it to us. Right? The goodness of God's creation calls us to love and trust the one who made all things. Several Christmases ago, the Busby girls received a full-size trampoline, and it came in a large box. And it took me six literal 24-hour days to create that trampoline from the box. And when I was finished with it, I was very proud. I had no skin left on my knuckles, but I was very proud of the work that I had done, and I couldn't wait for my girls to enjoy it. And I knew they would enjoy what I made for them, and they did enjoy it. And I knew they would show their appreciation to me and their mom through many hugs and kisses, and they did. But if they had renamed the trampoline Dad and treated it as such, we would have had a problem. God formed the earth so that we would enjoy creation, not worship it. He filled the earth with us so that we would adore the creator and the giver of good things. So essential beliefs related to the doctrine of creation. God created all things out of nothing. God's creation is good. And finally, God's creation points us to eternity. God's creation points us to eternity. Verse 5 says this, There was evening, there was morning, day one. And verse 8 says this, there was evening, there was morning, day two. And verse 13 says this, there was evening, there was morning, day three. Why does a biblical day, a Jewish day, go from evening to morning rather than from morning to evening? Well, Judaism has always measured days from evening to morning because that's how Genesis describes it. But what's the significance of it? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us specifically, but the tradition among God's people is this. God, God's created order of darkness followed by light teaches us the trajectory of our lives with Him. God's plan for our salvation will take us out of darkness and put us in the light. And no matter how dark the day is, God's light has the last word. Three different times we hear it at the beginning of this story. Evening, then morning. Evening, then morning. Evening, then morning. Darkness, then light. When these words were first read to God's people by Moses, they were in the darkness of the wilderness, but the light of the promised land was ahead. And then think years later when the kingdoms of Israel and Judah crumbled and God's people were in the darkness of exile, God gave them the light of a return home. And when Jesus breathed his last and darkness overtook the land, it didn't last Death couldn't hold him. It didn't get the last word because three days later, resurrection light poured out of that tomb. 
Revelation chapter 22 verse 5 tells us that this is what it's going to be like when we are with God ultimately and forever. Night will be no more. People will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun because the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. Evening and morning tells us the light of Christ wins in God's created order we're pointed to our eternity and our hope in Him. So what must we believe about creation? That's been the question this morning. We believe that God created all things out of nothing, that God's creation is good, and that God's creation points us to eternity. Knowing these things are true should increase your confidence in God, confidence in his power, confidence in his word, confidence in his goodness to you. This confidence ought to be seen in the way you live and speak with others. What should you do in light of a passage like this? I think it would be inappropriate to walk out into the arena of the world and pound our chests and say, we're right and you're wrong and see you later. That would be incorrect. Here's what I think you should do. Who have you been praying for to come to faith in Jesus Christ? I think this creation account adds fuel to that prayer. There is a creator. He is the God who has made himself known in his son, Jesus Christ. He is God, the Holy Spirit, who indwells those who believe in him. He formed this earth to be filled with people who bear his image and this one whom you know by name and whom you love and whom you've been praying for and maybe you've grown weary of praying for, this one needs to know God. That's what he or she was created for. And so when I get to the end of day three, I think for you and I, the right application is for us to hit our knees in prayer, praising God for who he is as the creator of all things, and once again, trusting his powerful word to bring light where there's been darkness, to bring home the one that we love and God's put on our hearts. Again, not by accident, but as an act of his creative goodness to give you this one to carry in prayer and to have a gospel conversation with as you walk with him towards the cross of Jesus Christ. So your homework this week is this. Pray, pray by name for the one created in God's image who needs to know God. And pray with confidence and pray knowing that God hears your prayer and he is working good things in the life of the person that you love and commit yourself in prayer to be the one that would share the gospel with them. And what if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior? We've, sat, we've covered a lot of ground this morning, a lot of big things. But what I want you to see here, if, if I'm a person that doesn't yet know Jesus as my Savior, look how loved you are from this story. You are known by God. The God who exists outside of space and time is the God who created you and formed you exactly as you are and he has made you to know him, to worship him. Not to worship the created thing, but to worship the creator. Creation makes for a lousy God. I mean, mountains and canyons and oceans and trees and hummingbirds are cool, but they're not God material. They're signs that point beyond themselves to a creator God who knows us and loves us and made us for himself. 
He promises you this, that if you would put your faith in Jesus Christ, who is God who took on flesh, who died in your place for your sin and rose again from the dead, if you'll put your faith in him, turn to him, he will rescue you, he will forgive you from your sin, and he will give you eternal life. And you will be in that place where you can join the heavenly choir, praising the God of creation, never experiencing the dark night of the soul again as you live forever in the eternal glorious light of God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this account of three days of creation. It's told in just a few lines, but these things are cosmos-shaking. They are planet-forming. Thank you for giving them to us in a way that we can understand. And so, Father, I pray that you would give us confidence in your word as your children, that we wouldn't quake whenever there are criticisms leveled against it, that we wouldn't make excuses for it as if we have to give an account to those who would deny you, but rather, Lord, solidify our confidence in your word so that we might worship well and that we might lead others to you. And God, I pray for those among us and in our lives who don't know you as their Savior, that they would be completely and totally unfulfilled by what they hope creation can give them, those things that only you can give them. And Father, in their great dissatisfaction, open their ears, open their eyes of faith, that they would hear you and believe you. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand as we sing in response to God's word. Who else could make every king bow down? 